Hi, I'm Marissa. And I'm Liza. And you're listening to Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. That music that you just heard in your ears was from the wonderful Lexi Anderson. Thank you for our intro music and for any little sounds that you hear during this podcast. Thank you, Lexi. Love you. The theme today is something a little bit special. We're doing Agatha Christie week. Happy belated birthday to Agatha Christie because when this comes out, it'll be the day after her birthday. Happy birthday, Agatha. Happy birthday from beyond the grave. <laughs> happy, 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 never mind. I was gonna say happy dad birthday, but that sounds sad. It is her dad birthday. It is her dad birthday. Not a long time ago. She died like in the 70s, right? 76, I believe. Oh my God. Wait, if that's true, I did write it down. Yeah, 76. That means my parents were alive for about a year when she was alive, a couple months. Yeah, my parents were alive when old Agatha passed on to the other side. My parents were a couple months old. Oh my goodness. They said, hi, Agatha. And then she said, peace. Peace. Bye. (laughs) I gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I will be talking about the Sitiford mystery. And I'm going to be talking about, and then there were none. And just a heads up so that we all feel organized and together here. We're going to be trying to do the episode in chronological order the best that we can. It makes sense in our brains. All right, Agatha. Woo! Uh, As I just said, Agatha Christie's birthday was September 15th, or is if you're us today, but was if you're going to be you listening to it later. Um, And she's... The best-selling novelist of all time, even outselling the Bible, which is pretty insane. But she does have quite a few books. She's been a busy lady during her life. So something interesting, her maiden name is Miller, Agatha Miller. Imagine if she didn't get married or if she just decided to use her own name. We would be reading And Then There Were None by Agatha Miller. It has just as nice a ring to it, actually. Like, I'm kind of surprised. Right. I think so, too. I wonder if it's just the three-syllable, two-syllable things. Yeah. And Agatha is such a cool first name. I think it's beautiful. It's, like, slightly witchy. Yes, because, yes. Well, have you seen WandaVision? I haven't. You should watch it. Because I titled the folder, just so everybody knows, Agatha All Along, because the main, that the, one of the characters in WandaVision is named Agatha, and she's a witch. Oh, I didn't know that. That goes, it was Agatha all along. And that reminded me of Agatha Christie. I like that. Yeah. I'll have to watch. You should. So something else a little bit interesting about our dear Agatha is she actually went missing before. I think it was 1926 she went missing. Yes. Pretty much. Long story short, she put her kid to bed and packed a bag and left in her car. And then the police found her car crashed. By that time, she was already a a famous author, probably 
UK's most famous, I would say. And so they were printing her picture in the newspaper and all this crazy stuff. No one knew where she was. But eventually they did find her at a spa. (laughs) She was just chilling at a spa. And she could not remember who she was. When they asked her what her name was, she said a name. I think the last name was the same name of her husband's mistress. I did not know that piece of it. Yeah. Because she had to go to doctors. I was going to say therapy, but I don't know. I don't, I don't think it was therapy at that time. Right. But she had to go to doctors and they had to figure out what was wrong with her. And they, I don't know, they, they said she could have bumped her head from the car crash. Um, she could have developed a kind of multiple personality thing. There's just a bunch of theories. Some people think that she just made it up so that she would sell more. Well, that's the theory I was wondering about was if it was a publicity stunt. How do it just feels a little bit too much like a coincidence that the greatest mystery novelist of all time went missing. But here's the other thing, too, about what you were going to get into more of that, too, is I wonder if it wasn't a publicity stunt, but she's so creative that she kind of crafted it, the whole affair on her own. But it just so happened that it was great that it got good publicity, but that because the way her brain works and can craft such bizarre mysteries, she just crafted one for herself. Yeah. I mean, who knows? But yeah, keep going. Um, So interesting. Crazy. I also think part of the she like made it up for a a publicity stunt thing is um, people were asking her husband questions and he was like so weird and embarrassed about the whole thing. And maybe she kind of did it to like embarrass him. And okay, this is also I don't know if this is true or not, but it was said. So I'm going to say it. (laughs) Um, Apparently. Her husband, the night she disappeared, it was close to the weekend or something. And her husband was supposed to go somewhere with his mistress that weekend. And so then she disappeared. And obviously, all these reporters and police are going to her husband's house. He can't go hang out with his mistress now. So did she do it to just embarrass him? I think maybe. Oh, I like that theory, I think, best. Total girl boss move, in my opinion. She said gaslight, gatekeep, girl boss. She invented it. She surely did. (laughs) But I I don't know. I love that. I think it's so interesting. And later in her life, she wrote an autobiography. I think it came out right close to when she died. Or maybe it came out after she died. I'm not sure. But she refused to talk about it. She was always like, oh, I just don't even remember the whole weekend. Girl, you were relaxing at a spa. You remember that. She knows. Remember it. She knows. Yeah, so she just refuses to talk about it. Super interesting. Even like myself as a writer, for those of you who don't know, I mainly, I like to write horror. So sometimes I'm like, this feels like a bad situation, but I'm going to sit in it so that I could write about it. (laughs) Oh my God. Should I go into the woods over there in the middle of the night? No. Am I going to? Hex, yeah. Yes. I need to go into that abandoned building right now. Marissa wants to be haunted. Even nightmares. I love having nightmares because it, I feel like it fuels me. If I'm seeing like a demon, if I'm seeing something scary, I like it. Hey. <laughs> so uh, I think, yeah, maybe Agatha was like 
I'm going to create a mystery and see how long it takes the world to find me the 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 best writer of the time. That's so interesting too because I had not realized the order that things were happening until we just just started to record this and her first book I think was in 1920. So to already be such an icon only 6 years later so much so that it's national news when this woman goes missing is very iconic. Right. I actually want to look up really quick how many books she had before that time. Especially if you're saying her first one came out in like 1920. Yeah. And she's already this famous. And then there were none, which is arguably one of her most famous books, did not come out for a while. Right. She had one, two, three, four, five of the Perot books come out from 1920 to 1926 and Perot I think is what really put her on the map right the fact that she was writing him so early that's nuts I think the Perot when we think of Agatha Christie of course we think about and then there were none and murder on the Orient Express and death on the Nile but I think Perot was the blueprint so if that was already big before this whole mystery you can totally see and I think that's interesting too like what you were saying too that she crafted this mystery for herself to see how long it would take people to figure out Mm -hmm. that feels like it very much goes with the concept a little bit of her Perot series and I should say that doesn't even include all the short stories she was writing at that time yeah which there's at least five I see on this list And she was also writing serialized novels for a while too, I think, where each chapter would come out in the newspaper. And I was listening to um, a separate podcast before this that was saying that the book I read was serialized, which I didn't know about her, but it makes sense for the times. So, I mean, she really was everywhere. Like people were reading newspapers that had her stories. People were buying hard copies of her books. So, I mean, literally like she was the it girl in England I don't know I just think about it and I'm like she saw herself in the paper yeah she was like I look a lot like her but cool I'm I'm not her okay homegirl we'll see (laughs) 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 so that's uh fun with Agatha Christie her and her husband actually did get divorced shortly after her fun little disappearance and she did get remarried to a man named Max Malawan. Hmm. Interesting name. But um, she never used his name, as far as I know. Everything I've ever seen her published as is Agatha Christie, which makes me sad to be a woman. Yeah. I, the moral of this whole story is that the husband was a villain, right? Like, that's what it all comes down to. <laughs> her mother even said it. That he was a villain. Her mother was like, he's never going to stay faithful to you. Okay. And well, and then I hope that she got to share her just ass loads of money with her new husband, who was hopefully way better than the first one. So, yeah, that that's some fun stuff about her. Yeah, anything to add? I think we hit the mark. I think we did. All right. Maybe we should get right into it. 
Yeah. So I will talk about the book I read for this week first, which was written in 1931. And I would also like to start off by saying I have never read an Agatha Christie before this week, which is kind of insane. I don't quite know how I made it almost 23 or 22 and a half years without reading Agatha Christie. But here we are. And I picked The Sitiford Mystery, which was also published previously as The Murder at Hazelmore. And I picked it because it seemed very spooky. It seemed like it kind of had like somewhat occult vibes, which I always like. And it also seemed, and other people have said this too. It reminded me of this when I was like reading the back of the book in this bookstore, which also shout out to this bookstore. It's called Mainly Murders and it's in Kennebunk, Maine. And all she sells is murder mysteries. Shout out to that. That sounds amazing. And though I, the woman who owns it was so fun and I kind of want to be here when I grow up, but she obviously had a whole Agatha Christie section. When I picked it up, it reminded me of the Hounds of Baskerville, Sherlock Holmes, which is one of my favorite Sherlock Holmes stories. So that was kind of why I went with this rather than one of her more popular ones. But I'm going to get into that a little bit later because I think that I may have erred by picking this instead of one of her really well-known books. But just to give a little bit of a summary, the Sidiford mystery begins in a snowy village at an afternoon tea turned seance hosted by a woman named Miss Willett and her daughter at the Sidiford estate. All the guests are playing with this spirit board when the board spells out that Captain Trevelyan, I think it's maybe French, I'm not sure, the man who owns the estate uh, that Miss Willett is leasing uh, will be murdered at 5.25 p.m. And let it be known at this point, the cast of characters at this sort of spirit board are the two Willett women three other men and a man named Major Burnaby, who is a good friend of the dude that um, is supposedly dying tonight. Um, So after the event at the Sidiford house, Burnaby goes to investigate what's tea at Trevelyan's house and finds that he is in fact dead. Um, So he involves the police, specifically a one inspector Narcot, and finds out that he was killed via blunt force trauma at the time, about the time the spirit board predicted. They also find out at this time that he left his will to a whole different cast of characters, um, namely his sister and his nieces and nephews. And so now people are trying to figure out who killed him because one of his nephews is in town and had like tried to borrow money. Could he have anything to do with this? They're trying to figure out what the motive is. And then the fiance of one of his nephews, Emily, begins her own investigation into the murder with the help of a journalist named Enderby. And that's all I'll say, because of course we won't spoil any more of the mystery. But now to kind of get into my thoughts on this, I'm just going to probably jump right into the scale instead of saying any grand thoughts beforehand. But in terms of readability, I had a super tough time getting through this book. I gave it like a 3.5 on readability, which feels brutal and was not something I was expecting. I don't really know what it was because I really liked the concept um, and I could really see how the concept 
could have been fun, but this call comes back to why I think perhaps I should have read one of one of her more popular books. I just had a hard time getting through it. And I had to end up listening to an audiobook, which is no shame in that. Like I know a lot of people who consume all of their books via audiobook. And then I had a little bit of an easier time with it, but I did keep zoning in and out. It wasn't as much of a page turner, I guess, as I I think I had such high hopes for it. And it just wasn't as much of a page turner as I expected it to be. But I looked into it and this book was very well received, despite it not being one of her better known titles. So I'm kind of starting to think it could just be me. I'm kind of thinking if you're listening to this and you haven't read an Agatha Christie that you might want to start with Orient Express or ABC Murders or what Marissa is going to review in a little bit only because I don't know the readability might be a little bit better and it might get you through it more Um, because kind of when I get to the rest of the scale you can see that the lowest point I kind of gave was readability and shelf worthiness because I gave it a two for shelf worthy because I uh, I think you could borrow it from somebody else if you do want to read it. I think you are probably better off um, if you want to use Agatha Christie as a source of inspiration. If you want to have a collection of Agatha Christie's that you read again and again, this doesn't really need to be one of them. But otherwise, I did rank this book kind of in the middle, not so low as those other two sort of sections. Um, because with form, It's not doing anything insane with form, but that being said, Agatha Christie's writing is so crisp and so good. And Marissa and I had a conversation about this too, before we started this episode, that sometimes books from this specific time period are hard to get through. And something else is there's a lot of dialogue in this book. And usually I'm so here for dialogue. I don't like books that are very inside one character's head and are very, very just descriptive of feelings and stuff like that. It feels a little bit cliche to me sometimes when that happens. And I always usually think that dialogue is more realistic and it makes it easier for me to get through a book. This is very dialogue heavy, but part of me wonders too if because of the speech patterns of the characters from this time period. I mean, we know this is written in the, was probably actually written in the late 20s. Maybe that had something to do with it. The closest thing that this book reminded me of, writing style wise, was Muriel Spark books. Specifically, one of her books that I really like is called Memento Mori, which is a similar vibe. But that book was written in the late 1950s. So that's a little bit later. And... I really liked that book uh, and it did kind of remind me of this a little bit. Um, So perhaps Muriel Spark is more my cup of tea style wise, even though they're kind of similar, but that's also something I want to get into in a minute. For plot, I gave this book a six because I do really like the concept. I thought the setting was super cool. I thought the spirit board aspect of it was really interesting I really liked the two kind of simultaneous investigations going on, the one with the actual inspector and the one with the two kind of amateur investigators, the journalist and uh, the fiance, Emily. But there were there that all that being said, there were parts of it where I got a little lost. And I think it's because I wasn't super 
into this book. It's a mystery, so I don't want to spoil anything, but there were parts of the investigation where I was just like, what? I don't know. I was getting a little bit lost. I wasn't super into it, but I was actually pretty shocked um, by the final reveal. And I didn't really see that coming. And I think that, that she explained everything really well. And I don't think there was any loose ends, which if you do decide to read the book, it's kind of impressive that there weren't any loose ends when you realize what actually happened. The plot was giving, like I said, it had Hounds of Baskerville energy, which is older than this. But um, in terms of plot, it was giving very much knives out. It was giving clue. While I was reading it, it was radiating energy of two actually really well done pieces of fiction I read by classmates in school. And all of this comes down to um, the fact that Agatha Christie was the original. Nobody was doing it like her until everyone was doing it like her, except for maybe Arthur Conan Doyle. And so, what I, I guess I'm trying to say with this tangent is we owe her everything in terms of the mystery genre no matter how much I didn't really care for this book how much can it really be criticized of course things like Knives Out are going to feel more exciting because it's you know modern and it's for the screen and it's Chris Evans and you know Anna de Armas and whoever but Knives Out wouldn't exist without this book you you didn't uh mention Jamie Lee Curtis that's very important our queen, Jamie Lee Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis, actress of our time, Freaky Friday. Um, <laughs> but also Halloween. Um, but okay. <laughs> I think her, this is a conversation for another day, but Freaky Friday should have won both her and Lindsay Lohan and Oscar. Absolutely. Yes. But yeah, even if you don't like Agatha Christie books, even if you read this and didn't like it and then read and then there were none and didn't like it. It's like, okay, well, I have to chill because we wouldn't have any of the cool mysteries we have today, I don't think, without her. Every kind of inspector, detective uh, story is hers, even if it's not. No matter how much I'm, you know, not really ranking this high on my 10-point scale, it's a perfect example of one of those books that's like, I may not have liked it, but it's still good. Uh, but all that being said, too, I think perhaps it's not one of her best. And I think we'll get into that more when Marissa starts talking about hers. Um, and it is interesting now knowing that this was written before and then there were none. Because I wonder if she got, like all writers, better and better the more she wrote. I did also look it up and... ABC Murders came out in 36. So that's also after this. I didn't look up Murder on the Orient Express, but that is a Perot one, right? That is, I so think. is ABC Murders. But still, I think I think Murder on the Orient Express was a little bit earlier. Yeah. I don't know for sure. But so, so I think she was just getting better and better. Right. And I also think that a lot of people like Murder at the Vicarage people said that this book reminded them of murder at the vicarage but people tend to like that one a little bit better and then people also said this one reminded them of the murder of roger Ackroyd, i believe is what it's called so this could just be you know every author has books that people like don't care as much for and it could very well be that this is one of them even though it was generally well received 
Um, and I forgot to mention, I do believe this was serialized, like I said earlier. And I wonder if that was helpful. I wonder if having to wait a week to read or many days to read every chapter made it more interesting. And if sitting down and reading it cover to cover in 2021 is just not the way that this book was supposed to be consumed. But that's all that. That's how I felt about plot. And then in terms of characterization, I also gave this about a six. I did like some of the characters in this. And I think that can be really hard to do with an ensemble cast. I don't know why I keep thinking of like Knives Out and Clue, but those are just like examples of a very interesting ensemble cast where everybody is very vibrant. And this wasn't so, I wouldn't say everybody in this ensemble cast was vibrant, but I did like some of the characters. And I thought Emily in particular was really cool and endearing. And I think a lot of people who read this book feel that way. I think women investigators are always very cool especially kind of when they're like amateur investigators. Nancy Drew is like a kid and she's like one of the coolest detectives of all time. And so I think that's kind of fun that Agatha gave us a a woman kind of amateur detective in this one. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think women investigators is something Agatha did very often. I think usually she had male investigators, right? I think towards the end of her writing, she did. Because she has Miss Miss Marple, right? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. But yes. I don't know when exactly Miss Marple books are. Okay. Um, it just struck me as like most of the Agatha Christie's that are very popular are, well, we have Perot, um, but are um, men. And so I thought it was cool that in this one, the police officer was pretty incompetent. Um, and it was the, you know, young woman who was kind of going off. And I also did, even if I liked him less, Um, I thought the journalist investigator Enderby was kind of fun. And that might be because I have like a soft spot for like journalists and writers. But I I thought that was like a kind of fun team. So, yeah, those are kind of all my thoughts. And that's why I'm kind of really excited to hear from Marissa, because I think we came to similar conclusions, but had very different experiences while actually reading the books. Um, So I'll let Marissa take it away. Okay, just to do a little bit of date checking, Murder on the Orient Express came out in 34. So I would say the 30s were kind of her time. She was rocking in the 30s. The Mysterious Affair at Styles was her first, and it came out in the 20s. The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which I also, when I was doing my research, that came up a couple times. That was in 26. So people did like her early. I'm not quite sure when her Mrs. Marple books came out. But actually, I bet you I can find it because, and I will tell you why, she was introduced in the murder at Vicarage, the one you were just talking about. So that's probably why it reminded people of that, um, because that's the first one she's introduced in. And let's see. So the murder at Vicarage came out in 1930. So yeah, I think that was pretty much all the fact checking that I wanted to do. So my book, and then there were none, came out in 1939. It's actually the second Agatha Christie book I read. I read ABC Murders, which came out in, 
36, I think. I think it was Murder on the Orient Express, 34. ABC Murders, 36. And then and then there were none in 39. And, you know, the 20s and the 30s were not a sensitive time. People were extremely ignorant. And Agatha is not excused from that. She was very racist in her books. And this is, we could probably talk a little bit more about this in a minute or so, but I think everyone from that time is going to be racist because they're ignorant. But there are some things that Agatha does that makes me question whether she was just moving into her characters um, and getting into their heads and making them be that way. Or if she actually thought that way. I have a hard time deciding how she actually thought. But let's get into it a little bit. So like I said, it was published in 1939 in the UK as 10 Little Insert Racial Slur. And only a couple months later in the US, it was published as And Then There Were None. During that time in the US, it was already known to be an offensive word. So that's why they didn't have that title and they had and then there were none. And in the book, it's said that all references were removed and either replaced with Indians or soldiers because it's based off of a poem called Ten Little Slur. And so not only is that poem repeated throughout, there's also little like porcelain china figures that are supposed to be the characters in the poem and also the island that the people go to uh it says it's supposed to look like that the head of a person so it also used that but by that time um in the u.s version they had 10 little indians or 10 little soldiers which is problematic to begin with because like, oh, this is really offensive to one group. So let's not be offensive to that group and be offensive to another group. Right. That, yeah. It's weird that they changed it to another term that is just not good. And that too is interesting to me as well, because that poem, I did not know the origins of that, that it was ever different. Um, But it was still a problematic poem, even when we were kids. I mean, I remember it being weird. I didn't know the poem. Okay, so I did. And I never heard it as 10 little soldiers. Um, Indian is obviously a term we do not use anymore, but is still more used sometimes. But that's what it was when I was little in in 2000. In the 2000s. So it, it, it is weird that that was just the way to go. You would think that they would have cut the poem completely. Or just use 10 Little Soldiers. Or just use... Te- I wish it had though- turned into 10 Little Soldiers in w- whatever time period this was and that we had n- never had to know it right. any other way. The, the poem, the version that Agatha used, there's a couple different versions of the poem. One using the slur another using indians and one using soldiers so it was it actually started off as like 
a rhyme in a song from minstrel shows. I also saw um, two different sources, two different things from this. Uh, the one saying that it was made with the racial slur after the Civil War when the South, they didn't want to feel inferior to the now like freed black people so they made this song and it's pretty much um, about black people not being able to do normal tasks one one gets like swallowed by a fish one drowns one like gets chopped up chopping wood like it's just so stupid the other thing too first of all this poem is just wildly offensive but now I'm thinking, okay, Agatha Christie is English. She's British. What was she doing um, using a poem made by horrifically racist Americans uh, when her country was better known for being a little less racist? I mean, we know the English were still very racist. Um, even you know at this time but it it makes it even it don't want to say it makes it worse because it would have been obviously horribly bad if also a lady from the 1930s America wrote it but it just makes it bizarre that she was like I'm British and I'm gonna use this racist poem from a minstrel show that was made after the civil war and I'm just gonna use it in my book in England what Is right I mean, okay, I also, I always think of America being, like, super, like, the most racist. And obviously, uh, England is also super, super racist. Like, they are just colonizers, and they colonized everything, and they think that they're entitled to everything. But interestingly enough, like I said, when it was published, the U.S. didn't use that name at all, and they removed all references and replaced it with either Indians or, or soldiers. The U.K., used this title until 1977 and that's just for the books i'm not even sure about all the plays that were coming out and stuff that's just for the book that's appalling as well because also i would just like to do a little you were saying that um earlier that your parents were just born when agatha christie died uh my parents were around uh they were almost they were teens by the time she died or my dad was and he remembers this book but I don't think he knew that about the title because he's American but how weird that around the time my dad may have even been reading the book like around the time she died that in England they were still using that title something else kind of strange in 1964 in the U.S. they were like eh, and then there were none eh and changed the title to 10 Little Indians. And it was that title until I, I saw 86, but I'm not quite sure about that. But like, guys, you, you had the title, just keep it. That's so strange. Like, why did they think that was a good idea? No, I also, it's gonna get down to this too eventually. Like there was no reason it ever needed to have the title or the poem, right? It has nothing to do with anything. Well, I read um, on a couple sources that she named it that 
because she wanted it. She wanted this island to feel like this, this dark, mysterious, like otherness of a place. Not, not Agatha pulling a, a freaking heart of darkness. Right. I did say that all the references were removed. And I, I should say that in my book, my book was published in 83. So this was published in 83 and it's part of the Agatha Christie mystery collection. It isn't then there were none. And the island that's described, they say that it's the head of an Indian. The figures are Indian boys, but there is the N-word in this book twice. So why would they say that all references were removed and replaced? And like, it's they're both in reference to the same thing, which is um, a phrase I've never heard of before. It's insert slur in the wood pile, which is like, I guess, when um, slaves were going up north, uh, they would hide people in wood piles when when people were like looking for them. So it's, it kind of means like, oh, something's being hidden or being deceitful or suspicious. And it says it in this book. And I, I think it's hard to like talk about this a little bit with not spoiling anything, but knowing what I know when I got to the end, that part could have completely been cut. Right. Well, it's almost like one of those things too, when um, that language is used and you're reading like old books and you're like we're not gonna say it obviously but it's in the book it's like you know like to kill a mockingbird or something like that but it's like if if it was only said twice and it has nothing to do with anything why didn't you cut it out right and and also in my opinion keeping it in the book leaves for a huge plot hole at the end interesting it gets weirder the more because i kind of knew this because i had seen a tiktok about it but the more you talk about it the weirder it gets right like okay i'm gonna cut this part but i'm gonna tell you really quick hey guys uh this is post recording marissa here past marissa is spilling some and then there were none spoilers tea to liza right now and it's spoiling hot get it Anyways, um, if you want the scoop here, you're just going to have to read the book. Yeah? Okay. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, you do that and come back. Yeah, okay, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Bye. That's really... So I'm like, you're the murderer. Why are you thinking this? Yeah, just cut. That could have been cut so easily. Right. And the second time it says it, it's in reference to when it was said before. So if you just cut the first one, it could have been cut again. Sure. Weird. Very strange. I think let's move into talking a little bit about uh, a couple of the other more racist things in here. So not only does she say the N-word on two pages, but there's also a character in here who was a soldier and he abandoned an African tribe. He pretty much left them for dead and he's super, super okay with it. This is talked about on page 31 and 44. And later on in the book, two of the three women are talking about it. And the one girl's like, well, they were just natives. Who cares? And then the other lady's like, 
black or not, like those are our brothers and sisters. So then that made me think, is she just getting into the characters? It seems to me like while you were saying that, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, it seems as though she was writing racist characters on purpose to say these people are racist and they are bad. But it also seems as though she had, um, she was being racist in the way she crafted the island and the concept in the first place. Mm-hmm. It sound, I mean, like what you just said, it sounds to me like your assessment is correct. I think there's both happening. I think she's being ignorant and racist, but she's also writing characters that are more racist on purpose. And those characters, yes. and those characters are bad, right? They're bad guys. I feel as though just about everyone in this book could be classified as like a bad guy. So that's interesting too. And that does remind me of Heart of Darkness, who we have to criticize Joseph Conrad for being racist, but also he was writing about racist people and saying they were racist. So there's many things happening. I believe it is the same character, but this same character, he makes a Jewish comment um, and, you know, a little bit of stereotyping there like right in the beginning on page four, as soon as you meet him. Just for my reading of detective fiction overall, there is a lot of racism in it. Usually detective fiction heavily relies on stereotypes. Um, And this is obviously going to be an ongoing conversation that we're going to have a lot as we um, read these things. So, but another thing I wanted to mention about Agatha Christie before I move into the book is there is something to mention about um, her most widely famous character who even had his obituary in the New York Times, a fictional character. So Perot is actually a foreigner. He's Belgian. And it constantly comes up um, in a lot of her books, like people being weird towards him because he is a foreigner. So it's interesting that she chose him as her main character. And Okay, the Belgians were historically so racist. So that's just, that's why I made that face. I mean, listeners can't see, but when you said, when Marissa said he was Belgian, I like, my face contorted. I just also feel like you could have picked any other country. You know what I mean? Right. If he was supposed to be discriminated against and she was like, guess I'll make him Belgian. Right. But um, she did make that choice. She's she's trying some things. She's not doing great, though. I'm about to get into um, my review of And Then There Were None. Usually I will read a quote from it, but I find it fairly hard without spoiling anything. And also, since we had this big talk, I thought I would just read a little quote from one of the articles I read instead that is talking about kind of like racism in children's poems. So this is by Blake, I'm gonna butcher his name, Blake Almendinger. Uh, He wrote an article called The Erasure of Race in Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. So he says, however the rhyme suggests that children imbibe racism like mother's milk, indicating how difficult it may be to unlearn prejudice once it has been unconsciously absorbed. That's just something for us to think about while we get into this. So as I'm getting into the rating of it all, 
like Eliza said, I had a little bit of a hard time reading this, I think because of the time period. And so that is something that I did factor in when writing my my critique of it. I did think about how the time period was affecting how I was thinking. So to get into it, for readability, I actually had a seven. I was dreading reading this because I did not think I was going to like it at all. And I thought I would have a really rough time staying focused. But once I started, I realized that the story was good enough to keep me interested and questioning what would happen next. So I did finish it quick, mainly because the story really commanded my attention. And I did really want to know what was happening and figure it out. So readability, seven. For form and style, I said six. So one thing... There's not much form playing to be done during this time, I would say, especially with mystery novels of this time. I think it's probably more important to focus on the plot in Agatha's case than I think it was to focus on playing with style and things. But she does do a point of view switch, which is kind of interesting. So my edition of the book like I said before, was from the Agatha Christie Mystery Collection, which was released in 83-85. So my chapters were sectioned off into five different parts, and the point of view switched every section. But I've read that earlier editions were not like that. There were no section breaks in chapters, so I'm assuming that the characters' point of views just kind of rolled into each other. I would say there are a few parts of the book where this happens without the section break and it really really works I am going to talk more about that in characterization so I'll just leave it at that but because of that reason alone I thought that was super interesting and I gave the form and style a six is it shelf worthy and would I read it again I rated this a six to a seven I would say it's worth reading just for it being one of the greatest mystery books of all time Not to mention it is the foundation for, as Eliza was mentioning earlier, in which I will re-talk about in plot, um, it's the foundation for everyone's favorite house murder mystery books. Could you read it more than once? Absolutely. Do you need to? I don't think so. It would be interesting to see if you can gather anything from the killer with the reread, but I doubt it. If you're wanting to read this book, and you think that you are going to find substantial clues and be able to definitely guess who the killer is before the end, I'm going to tell you I don't think that you can. I think Agatha is pretty much just telling us a story here and not asking us to be a part of it. So for plot, I said eight to nine. Agatha deserves all of the credit here. To set the scene, I want you to think group of people invited to a luxurious house by an unknown person where murders start occurring and the only explanation is that it's one of them. Doesn't that sound like every murder mystery you've ever loved completely? As Eliza mentioned, these are the two I also wrote down. Clue, which, fun fact, my favorite board game, and um, Knives Out. I'm pretty sure there was also a game called, like, house or something that was similar to this so there are all these house murder mysteries that branch off but this one is the og 
th- these whodunit mysteries are something we've seen over and over and over, and we love them every time. And they all stem from what Agatha Christie made. So just for that alone, I scored the plot very high. You know, thinking like, hey, is there something different about this? To me, no. But that's because I've seen everything that, that has sprouted from it. So um, I do, I think it deserves an eight or nine. For characterization, I did 5.5 to six. And I commend Agatha on being able to get so in tuned with her characters um, so that those tiny parts that I was talking about where the point of view changes without section breaks, I could pretty much still tell who's talking without being given a name. There's this one part where they're all sitting at the table you know, quite a few murders have already happened and they're all like, oh my gosh, like I think it's this person and this, and they're just thinking and all you're getting are their thoughts. It's not saying this person says or this person thought, nothing like that. And I still was like, okay, so I think this is pretty much this one. This is this one. I could pretty much guess pretty accurately, I think, who it was, which which just goes to show that her characters are pretty consistent and the their character traits are pretty strong that's commendable to do I unfortunately did not feel connected to the characters but I am aware that it's probably the time period this is from the women were often hysterical and the men were often brutish and ready to go out guns blazing and here's my problem with this it was annoying because I'm 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 a woman in 2021 like this is this is not how it is and it's also just annoying that you know the whole idea of hysteria and women have to be hysterical because I don't know because they have a uterus and um for those of you who don't know the word uterus is from the word hystera which is greek for uterus And so uh, long, long, long ago, men thought that the uterus would hop around to different places of the female body and make symptoms of hysteria. So if you're hyperventilating, well, that must be because your uterus has hopped up in your lungs, obviously. If your hands are shaking, it must be because your uterus took a little pit stop to the hands. (laughs) So um, that's where we get hysteria it's just annoying that like the women have to be over emotional about the whole thing and and honestly they have to be hysterical that's how it was the whole book I think that that really stopped me from fully connecting with them I just couldn't like her characters I couldn't like the way I couldn't like their 1930s style is what I should say um but overall I, I surprisingly did enjoy the book, and I think that people should give it a one-time read. Not more than that. Just once. It's fine. Just once. As long as you're aware of the things at play, I think that it's good to, like, just just know you're probably going to get mad and get offended. I did. I was mad, and I was offended. But I was like, all right, I'm here to see these people die to the end. And that's what I did. So that's all I have to say about that.
Wow. That was so comprehensive, Marissa. Uh, I wrote notes so I would stay organized. I just kept feeling like I'm sure your mystery class that you referred to could have benefited from that analysis of this book and the mystery genre at large. When you were talking about how racist mystery fiction is, I thought, and that's when I said, before we started recording this podcast and we were talking about this, I said, yeah, I think genre fiction at large is super racist, which it is. And there is racism in the books themselves, but also um, the genre fiction, is, genre fiction is so disproportionately written by straight white men. And so I kind of thought the conversation was going to be more around that, the, the that racist aspect of it, but the actual fiction is also racist, horrendously. Which I've been thinking about this, obviously. So an, another one that I know of is... Um... It's by Dashiell Hammett, and it's it's a popular movie, and I just recently watched it on the plane. The Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett. If, if any of you haven't read anything Dashiell Hammett, he's a really good detective fiction one, uh, one guy. I think I like his book, Red Harvest, probably the best. But in his book, The Maltese Falcon, there is this one character who is, I believe, of Asian descent. And he's used to be like sly and sneaky and like, it made me realize that a lot of detective fiction feels like it has to rely on stereotypes to work, which is interesting. It makes me want to read a more current mystery. Another thing that we could talk about when it comes to detective fiction is also misogyny. Obviously you have like the femme fatale, like the the woman who lures men to their deaths and, you know, things like that. And it's it's littered all throughout it. And I just don't understand, again, why they think they have to rely on stereotypes to make this work. It's just, it's, it's outdated. And I haven't read enough new detective fiction to know if it's still like that, but I would definitely be interested in that. And I would hope that is something that is changing slash has changed. Um, I have not obviously read detective fiction from today, I don't think, you know, but hopefully that's stopping and that there's more diverse authors writing diverse detective fiction. I didn't get to read this book because it was during COVID when I was taking the class and we had to go home and everything, but I do have, do you remember when we first came to Pratt? And we had to read the book, The Colossus of New York. Yeah, Colson Whitehead. Right. He wrote a recent detective fiction novel that I actually have on my shelf, but I haven't read it. I don't know how recent yeah. it is, but it's more recent. Um, and it's called, I think, The Institutionalist or something. And oh. he's like an elevator inspector. It sounds really cool and interesting. Yeah. And also, he's a, he's a person of color. So it would be very interesting to take a look at that. Um, also maybe me and Liza will look up 2020 detective fiction and see what's, what's came out and what will be good. And maybe it's crap and we get to complain about it to you. Yeah. 
Um, but if you're taking anything away from today, stop the racism. Stop it. R- raise your hand if you use books as an escape. I, I, I hope everyone's hand is, is up in the air right now, wiggling around. So why do I want to open a book and see racist things? I don't. Unless the lesson is that these people are terrible and racist and racist things are happening in our society. Yeah, then that's okay. It's the senseless, like you said, stereotyping by white people that make you go, well, yeah, stop. I guess we got to move on. Yep. Would you like me to announce next week's theme? Yes, please. Um, so next week is another big birthday um in the world of famous authors and it's Stephen King's birthday so our episode next Thursday we are each going to be reading a Stephen King book and talking about those and talking a little bit about him um to celebrate his b-day and he is still with us Stephen he's still kicking he's still if you're listening Steve Follow him on Twitter. Uh, he posts his dog a lot. Molly, the thing of evil, he calls her. And she's gorgeous. And I'm obsessed with her. He does spend most of his days on Twitter, it appears. Uh, that's what he's doing. Um, that's what he's writing. <laughs> he's <laughs> writing tweets. He's also still writing, though, which is crazy. Yeah, he just came out with a book recently. And uh, I don't know how. Because he has so many. King still has... King, who is King... Um, still has a lot of brain juice flowing. Leave some words for the rest of us. I know, he's stealing all the ideas. Either way, I'm going to be reading um, Misery. And I'm going to be reading uh, book one of The Dark Tower, which is The Gunslinger. Excited. I think our books are really different. So that's going to be that. And um, we're real excited. And you can listen to us next week. And if you miss us in the meantime, follow us on social media. Uh, Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at LSMR Podcast and Facebook at Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. And that's all she wrote. Thank you guys for listening. Bye. Bye. Help me. Bye.